0: Andrew Neal is, in my judgment, uh, the world's most distinguished and experienced print and broadcast journalist. Um, for many years, he worked for Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. He was the editor of the UK Sunday Times in the 80s and the 90s, before becoming the executive chairman of Sky News. And for the best part of a quarter of a century, he was at the BBC, most notably as the lead political interviewer at the Beeb and if anyone is interested in seeing a good quality political journalist subjecting guests whether they're Tory or Labour, Greens or Brexiteers to really rigorous intellectual and political scrutiny just go on YouTube and see Andrew Neil. He is the best in the business and if I may say so as someone who does also work at the ABC There is no one like Andrew Neil at (laughs) R.A.B.C. Andrew is also a very prominent columnist at the Daily Mail. He writes a column every Saturday. It's about 2,000 words. It's always must reading. I read it every Saturday before I read the Sydney Morning Herald, among other papers. Uh, (laughs) And Andrew is also uh, chairman of Press Holdings, which publishes The UK Spectator, the oldest English language in the world, uh, English-speaking language in the world, and also the Australian Spectator, which has been around since 2008. I had the great privilege of editing the Spectator Australia from 2009 to 2014. Rowan Dean, who's here tonight, publishes it, edits it today. uh, Has been editing it since 2014, and copies are available. So, with all that, please welcome the great man, Andrew Neil.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Andrew,
0: welcome back to CISN Australia. Hey,
1: thank, thank you. It's great to be back and thank you for that introduction. My father would have believed it and my mother would have liked it. So <laughs> I'm grateful for that and all I can say is the checks in the post. <laughs> but since it's the Australian Post, I wouldn't hold you. Back.
0: <laughs> now, last time you were here in 2018, um, it was September 2018, so it was just after we knocked off a prime minister, Malcolm Turnbull, and a few months later you're at the BBC Mm. and you interviewed Malcolm Turnbull and he said the reason why his Liberal Party colleagues knocked him off was because they feared he'd win the next election.
1: (laughs) Tell us more. He did say that. It was in a restaurant in uh, in the heart of Westminster where we pre-recorded the interview. I thought I'd misheard him (laughs) (laughs) because no politician's ever said that to me before, and I said... You're saying that the reason they got rid of you is because they thought you'd win. And he said, yes, I, they thought I'd win. That's why we got rid. And actually, for once, I was a bit stumped for words. I mean, <laughs> anyway, it went viral in, uh, in Australia. and um, Extraordinary. It and, was an extraordinary answer. And, and intriguingly, or perhaps not so,
0: he's often the ABC's go-to guy when it comes to federal politics. You know, whenever there's a problem with the Liberal Party, the ABC go to him to talk about the problems in the Federal Liberal Party. Was it a bit like this with Ted Heath, with the Tories?
1: No, not really, because whatever you think of, uh, of Malcolm's politics, I mean, he's, he's a kind of a vunculate. He's quite an a, a, a easygoing character on television. Ted Heath was always miserable. Right. Uh, I mean, he, 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 his nickname was just the, the Great Sulk. I mean, he... <laughs> He sulked for like 30 years after Thatcher yeah. had deposed him. So although to begin with, we we went because, you know, he's a former Conservative prime minister, former Conservative leader, replaced... By Margaret Thatcher, what he says was a story. After a while, it was so miserable interviewing him. Yes. That, you know, <laughs> we thought just leave, leave him alone, let him sulk with his piano. Now, when you were
0: last here, we were talking about the political churn of our prime ministers yes. in a short period of time. So you had Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, Rudd again, Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull, mm-hmm. Scott Morrison and this was a talking point around the world, but look at your own country since 2016. Have well, I got had, to? Is that well, you've, you've had five Tory prime ministers since 2016. David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris mm. Johnson, Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak. I think I've got that right. Yep. How do you account for this dramatic churn in Westminster?
1: Uh, it's not just a British phenomenon. Uh, I think parties of the right everywhere are going through some quite serious turmoil and leadership. It's become a particular British problem uh, because of Brexit, which was a disruptive event. The politicians lost control of the political process. That's what happens when you give people a referendum. Uh, Australia, take note. (laughs) Uh, Mr Albanese and Mr Dutton, I mean, their careers either one could find their career on the line as a result of the referendum. David Cameron knew if he lost the Scottish referendum. He'd have to resign. Mm. Uh, he won the Scottish referendum. He won it quite comfortably. And, and, ever, it's, uh, 2014. Uh, and ever since then, uh, the Scottish nationalists have yeah. uh, done their best to destroy the case for Scottish independence, <laughs> which I, for which I thank them. And uh, I have to report to you tonight, the union has never been stronger in modern times. <laughs> uh, and uh, for those of us who believe in the union, that is very uh, good news. But Brexit in particular had this huge effect. It meant, unlike the Scottish referendum, David Cameron lost the Brexit referendum, and he had to resign. I think mean, yes. He did the honourable thing in resigning. But it had split the governing party, split it in several ways, made it in some ways dysfunctional, yeah. which referenda can do, uh, particularly when this was the first referendum in which the people voted against the establishment. In previous, you know, the establishment wanted the union Mm. to remain. The people voted that way. The establishment wanted to stay in the European Union when we voted to remain uh, uh, or stay in 1975. Mm. The establishment won that. The establishment wanted us to vote to remain in 2016. We voted to leave uh, 52 to 48. And that itself was hugely disruptive in British politics. Then, of course, you had the pandemic, mm-hmm. and the pandemic played to a force that was already underway, which is that pandemics create an appetite for big government. Uh, they're like wars. Uh, pandemics, pandemics create the condition in which government begins to intrude and do things and spend money uh, to a degree and in areas that they would never dream of doing in non-pandemic times. Mm-hmm. And uh, that created a, and, and Boris Johnson – of course, was a natural big government conservative Mm -hmm. too. So he was happy to go along with this. That created a lot of disruption and that created the the truss insurgency, Mm -hmm. which was... About as successful as Bonnie Prince Charles's insurgency, <laughs> or as I call it, the cluster truss. <laughs> Um It's being a family event. I choose my words uh, care, carefully. Uh, and although you could understand the motive for that, it was almost like a kind of Thatcherite rebellion yes. against this move to big government. It um, she was useless. And she hadn't prepared the ground. She didn't know what she was talking about. She was completely out of her depth. She lasted for six weeks. Chancellor to blame as well, to be uh, fair. Yes. Wasn't just oh, yes. And he should have known better. Mm-hmm. And then on top of the, I, I said to you pandemics are a bit like war in terms of creating big government. I mean, the obvious example of that is the Attlee government in Britain in 1945, mm-hmm. in which big government had beat the Nazis. So it was an easy... Arguments say big government will beat poverty. Mm. Big government will create a welfare state. And the British people voted overwhelmingly in '45 for that. It was like a war. Well, lo and behold, not only have we had the pandemic, we now have a war. Mm, We've mm. got the biggest war in uh, Europe uh, since 1945, since the end of the Second World War. That again reinforced the big government too. And so you had all these tendencies going on, a chunk of the Conservative Party not liking it, another chunk being big government conservatives saying, no, this is fine. You had Brexit, which was disruptive. You had Ukraine, you had the pandemic, You, you, you had a... Uh, a level of incompetence as well. I mean, the Tory party gene pool is pretty depleted these days. Uh, I mean, the cabinet's got a combined IQ and single figures at the moment. (laughs) Um, So you add all that together and you've got the disruption, but you've seen the mess the Republican Party's in in the United States. I don't need to tell you about the eruptions the Liberal Party here has gone Mm. through. I mean, I look at the... uh, let, let's take both the center-right and the center-left parties, the mainstream parties in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Republican Party, which is the old Gaullist Party, the Socialist Party, which is a center-left party, they barely don't exist anymore in France. You know, these, these mm. are the people that, uh, that ran the Fifth Republic since 1958 mm. for 95% mm. of the time. Mm. At the last election, the Republicans got 8% of mm. the vote and the Socialists got 6% mm. of the vote. So there are big forces at work here that haven't yet worked their way through. You look at Italy, where the right-wing party in charge now is not the traditional uh, um, Berlusconi party, the traditional Conservative party. It's now run by Madame Maloney, who is from a much more right-wing populist Mm. uh, tradition. You take the government party, the Law and Justice Party in Poland. Mm. Again, that's not a traditional Conservative party. That is a pretty hard right conservative uh, party there. So the parties of the, I mean the parties of the left have had their problems but I think the parties of the right have also uh, had their problems and that it's a long winded way of saying there are both short-term and longer-term underlying yes. trends. I just want to say if I, it would seem from where things stand at the moment that Mr Sunak has settled the boat a yeah. bit. Well Labour's
0: poll lead over the Tories according to a poll this morning has contracted to 14 points. Correct. That's the best it's been since Rishi Sunak's been there. It has. It? 14 no. points is a lot, though.
1: 14 is, is a lot. It isn't necessarily a lot in the in the midterm of uh, a government. Right. Uh, what Mr Sunak is, there, if you were betting, I think you still have to bet the Labor will form the next government. Okay. my so working, Keir Starmer being Prime Minister. Yeah. Unlike Jeremy Corbyn, no one's frightened of Keir Starmer. Mm. Uh, nobody's gagging for him either. He's not Tony Blair. He's not Tony Blair. You know, which was, you know, a watershed moment in British Mm. politics, won by the biggest landslide in 150, 160 years. But they're not frightened by him. The Tories have a certain pass their sell by feel about them. They're, as I say, running out of talent, running out of policies Mm. in a way too, uh, Starmer has not, as they would say in Scotland, set the heather on fire. Mm. I mean, he hasn't even set his own window books on fire, (laughs) never mind uh, the heather. Uh, And so he's not rocking it. And can Keir Starmer define a woman? You have to ask Mr. Starmer that. What he does in his private life is none of my uh, (laughs) business. What I would say of Mr. Sunak is that he's building up a... I know the Prime Minister a little bit, don't know him well, but my political editor, James Forsyth, yep. was his best friend and now works for, be, and now mm-hmm. works for mm-hmm. best uh, man at his wedding, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as Mr. Sunak was best uh, man at James's uh, mm-hmm. wedding. And he's building up a reputation for competence, uh, which the Tory party under Boris Johnson the then Liz Truss seriously lost. And then, you Eesh. know. If the Tories haven't got competence, what else do they? Do yeah, they but hang got? on, mate. If the British
0: economy is flatlining, the the, 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 the economy growth is pretty sluggish. Why is a Tory yeah. Prime
1: Minister proposing to increase company taxes? You would have to ask uh, him about that. I've interviewed him many times, and I've I've said to him for ten years, Tory Chancellors told me that if they cut business tax, revenue would rise. Now you're telling me if we raise business no. tax, revenue will rise. Both statements cannot be yeah, right. Can't be right. No. One has to be <laughs> wrong. And I think part of the problem has been that although Britain had the lowest corporation tax of any major economy, uh, they managed to get it down to 19%. I think from about 28, they eventually mm. got it down to 19. It did it's- not produce a boom in investment. Mm. But that wasn't because of the level of taxation. If you look at a private investment in Britain through from about, After the great crash in 2008, it begins to recover a bit in 2009. And then it slowly, not dramatically, but slowly begins to rise. Then the Brexit referendum takes place and it just flatlines. Mm. I think Brexit, because business, which was against Brexit, Mm. but also saw it as a step into the unknown, they just stopped investing.
0: Andrew, as you know, uh, CIS is a classical liberal think tank, so we Mm. believe in uh, free markets, productivity, enhancing economic reform, limited government. Sure. Uh, These are dark days for classical liberals and free marketeers. You know, you just mentioned all these centre-right parties embracing big government. It reminds me of something, and I want to put this to you, Jonathan Friedland from The Guardian, at the height of the pandemic around April, May of 2020, said that just as there are no atheists on a sinking ship, there are no
1: free marketeers during a pandemic? Well, I think that's true. Uh, of course, it's perfectly possible to take the decision that during a pandemic, which is not a, you know, the free market's a wonderful thing. It is not the solution to everything. Mm. And it certainly isn't the solution to a pandemic. Margaret Thatcher would have created big government during a pandemic. Mm. But of course, once you've done that and you've won, you've sort of conquered the pandemic, you go back to where uh, you were. I th- I think there are no. If I look round the mainstream right wing parties at the moment, they are. Uh, there's no Thatcherite Reaganite uh, party that's that of any importance at the moment. So I think the Donald Trump turned the Republicans into a big government party. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I've mm-hmm. explained about Britain. Mm-hmm. The the hard right or the 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 more the non-mainstream right, like Madame Le Pen in France or Madame Maloney in, in Italy, they are not free marketeers. They believe in big government yeah. because they've got a lot of working-class voters and they want to pump up the welfare state. They are pro-protectionism. They're pro-very high minimum wage. So and I think that's why uh, mistrust fell in her face because the time wasn't right for her revolution and she hadn't done the homework. If you are going yeah. to go for a, a, a more, mar- what I would call a Jeffersonian approach. Decentralisation. and, uh, and But smaller government mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore lower taxes. If you're going to go for that route and less regulation and the government, which these days just tries to do too much and so, what, so much of what it does do, it does very badly. If you had government to try and concentrate more on what it has to do, defense of the realm, condition of the people, and all the rest of it, and try to do that well. If you're going to argue for that, you need to prepare the ground. And in the run-up to the Thatcher Revolution, which kicked it off in 1979 when she won her first election uh, there... A lot of groundwork had been done by think tanks like, yeah. the, like this, the oh, IEI, Institute of Economic yep. Affairs. I was at The Economist throughout the mm-hmm. 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a lot of the groundwork. The Economist then, a very different magazine from now, and it's now the publishing arm of Davos Man <laughs> uh, and Davos Woman. <laughs> She's is the it, editor, right? Indeed, we call the editor Zini Davos <laughs> Woman plain, is yeah. a name. Yes, yes. Which uh, works on so many levels as a nickname. <laughs> In these days it was more of a center center right. Ra- we used to say we wrote from the radical center that the center was not a place where you' just split your differences. You could have radical policies. So thing, the novel idea that you could privatize, uh, the, mm. as the Americans would call it, garbage collection, the novel idea that perhaps an airline did not have to be state-owned. Yes that you could do it, that British Telecom didn't have to be state-owned, that you could survive on less government. And the trickiest of all to get across, that there are sub-tax rates, not all, not the basic rate of income tax, but the higher marginal rates, if you cut them judiciously, you will end up with more revenue. That's a counterintuitive argument to get across. It take, So I'm going to cut the rate of tax, but I'll mm. get more revenue and, of course, with Nigel Lawson sadly mm. departed from us. And, by the way, yeah. there's
0: a brilliant piece by the Prime Minister, mm. Rishi Sunak tribute to mm. Nigel Lawson in the current mm. issue
1: of The Spectator, which you have a copy of. I mean, Mr Lawson did that uh, in the 1980s. Not only did we get more revenue from the top income, mm. a bigger mm. share of income tax revenues came from the better off. Yes. It's because they were paying well, their income tax now. They were coming back from low-tax zones. But it takes a lot of homework to do that. Yes. You can't just spring it on the public. And I guess if you want to be really miserable, not only, and it always suits a Scottish Presbyterian to be miserable, we, <laughs> we we live in constant fear that somewhere in the world somebody might actually be enjoying themselves. Uh, <laughs> that that uh, not, not only is nobody promulgating these ideas at the moment, uh, no one's laying the
0: groundwork for no. them either. Nigel so. Nigel once told me um, he, he, he learned a valuable lesson from Enoch Powell, of all people, and he had this line that I've often paraphrased, which is that, and I say this to a lot of younger people, a lot of younger Australians and indeed younger Brits, millennials, mm-hmm. the Generation Z, they're attracted to socialism. They're very... Uh, contemptuous of free market. Sure, well, if you
1: haven't lived through it, it probably sounds quite nice. Yeah,
0: yeah. well, they they break socialism. And um, I say, and this is Nigel's point, and before him, Enoch Powell, that you don't tax a loss, you tax a profit. Because sure. only profit, only capitalism will provide governments with the revenue you need to pay for health and education
1: and welfare and defence and so on and so forth. Simple message. But they're all basic arguments that we've kind of forgotten. And that almost nobody is making now. I mean, as you say, even Rishi Sunak has been the yeah. one pushing up corporate taxes. Mm. He said he needs the revenue. We'll see if he gets any of the revenue. Taxes are always some, cutting taxes is something they'll do tomorrow. Yeah. Never today. And, you know, there's a, there's a re really, Nigel Lawson also said you can't cut taxes on the back of debt. You can't borrow. Yeah. He didn't cut taxes by borrowing. No. He cut taxes by getting yeah. control of spending and well, i think the western world has reached quite a dangerous phase at the moment in that throughout the western world we have built massive welfare states on debt yes they're all built on debt they're not well, i mean the only honest people here are the scandinavians they they have the most advanced welfare states but you have the highest taxes yes but they have
0: low company tax rates
1: they they well they had to do that because they all moved to london <laughs> yeah, that was—they no choice. but, okay. but, do, but this is a very good that. point
0: you raise because I want to just segue here to an article that my colleague Robert Carling wrote today in the Financial Review, and this is about Victoria, hmm. uh, which is, as John Howard says, the Massachusetts of Australia. And I think that's unfair in Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, Robert Carling. The headline: Victoria's crippled finances are all Daniel Andrews' fault. The premier, mm-hmm. having resisted any appeals from the federal government for moderation in 2020 and 2021, it's a bit rich for the Victorian premier to look to Canberra now for help in fixing his budget black hole. So Victoria's got a real debt problem here. There are there is this is question I'm here is there is a cost to high levels of big government.
1: There's a cost to uh, high levels of big... I mean, the one thing you have to be keyer, clear on is that in some areas there's a case for big government. Uh, and a, the pandemic
0: mm-hmm. created
1: a We realised that being dependent on 10,000-mile-long supply lines was not necessarily a sensible thing to do. The pandemic taught us that. But if you want to shorten supply lines, that basically means an industrial strategy, mm-hmm. which means big government. So you have a choice there. One thing follows as night follows day is the big government means big taxes. Mm -hmm. You can only borrow so much and it catches up with you. And most Western governments have maxed out the credit card. I mean, take Greece's uh, uh, national debt is now 175% of its GDP. I'll say that again, 175% Mm. of its GDP. Even a big economy like France is 113% of its GDP. France is quite a good... uh, Uh, case study, poster child for the current situation at the moment because France has this massive national debt. It's the second biggest economy in the EU, 130. That means that next year, if France devoted all of its GDP to paying off its national debt, all of its GDP, it still would not have paid off its national debt. It's also the most taxed country in in Europe. Uh, It's quite hard to see taxes going higher. Previous government raise taxes on the better off, as governments tend to do, because it's less controversial. The result was that France lost 60,000 millionaires. 60,000. I didn't realise there were 60,000 millionaires (laughs) in France, but there were. Most of them no longer there now. That's a huge chunk of its tax base, because one of the features of the modern world is that the tax base now becomes more and more dependent on a small number of people. The top 1% of income earners in Britain now account for 30% of income tax revenues. Wow. 1%. Wow. You lose that, you've lost yeah, your tax base. Yeah. Income yeah. tax is still the single, single biggest generator. So it's quite hard to put up taxes mm. any further. You put them up, and the rich, the rich leave. There's nobody more, more mobile than a well educated professional person. Government spending in France is now 59% of GDP. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. Uh, you know, your federal government here spends barely half of that right, as a right, share 25. of GDP, yeah. 59%. <laughs> I don't think they need any encouragement. Uh, they just build yeah. another, and snowy, another snowy 2.0. Yeah, well, yeah. You'll, uh,
0: what was Margaret Thatcher's line about socialism?
1: Oh, they run out of other people's money, but yeah. you're not running out of other, other people's <laughs> money. Uh, uh, so where do you go? I mean, you've kind of, you can't really borrow anymore particularly at a time of rising interest rates. Yes. So you take the Victoria, uh, they are now going to be spending $7 billion a year mm-hmm. on debt finance. They probably mm-hmm. don't spend that much on schools. <laughs> you know, that's a yes. huge cost to the, to the state uh, treasury. So that's hard to, incre- to, to increase taxes. It's hard to spend more. You've reached the limit on borrowing. There has to be a reckoning there. And I think that's one of the things that will work out in the 2020s. You say there
0: should be a reckoning and there will be, no doubt, but the concern we have at CIS is that a lot of younger generations think that this is an excuse for more government intervention.
1: Yes, though in in my experience, the younger people's views on politics, I mean, what they know about economics, you could write on the back of a postage stamp and still leave room for the Lord's Prayer. Uh, (laughs) Because they don't give a monkey's about economics. Yeah. They've been brought up in relative affluence. It's not a yeah. huge issue. There isn't a post-war rebuilding going on. There isn't a need for growth. They're much more concerned about cultural identity yes. issues. Yes, yes. And cultural identity issues really do suck the lifeblood mm. out of a political system, and they divide us where we should be united. They make us argue about things in the grand scheme Uh, uh, of things are, I mean, how this transgender business has managed to get on to national debate and become Mm. a national issue is beyond me. But that's what seems to get them out of bed in the morning. Actually, in many cases, they don't bother to get out of bed. Um, So I think that what has happened in modern times, and of course, this is basically the move of the culture of the campus into the boardrooms and the newsrooms Mm -hmm. and the business offices of the rest of society Mm -hmm. and the government agencies Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. and so on, which means, I'm afraid, it has a long way to go. Well, radical cultural sea change. That brings me to something that Oxfam recently
0: did. It apologised for the English language, Andrew, describing it as, quote, the language of a colonising nation... They also counseled against using the words mother and father. This is Oxfam because they ascribe
1: gendered roles.
0: What's going on here? Well,
1: I mean, mean, as you know, I wrote a call The the reason you know that is you read my (laughs) uh, quote. I did my homework. You passed the test and you did your homework. This is not unusual now. This is happening all the time. So one of the reasons that uh, The Spectator in Australia is going to start a new weekly, or actually bi-week, bi-week, or twice weekly newsletter called uh, 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 Cafe Culture. Uh, and it's going to be about these issues mm. because they have to be taken on. And uh, they need to be beaten before we can get back to the things that matter. Mm-hmm. And people, I mean, the the woman, the, the uh, indigenous academic that I was on with, uh, a Q&A on Monday, I'm sure... You'll watch it because it's got such a huge audience these days. Um, the, the woman I was on said that her cultural identity is the most important thing to her. I strongly, or, or even her racial identity, yeah. I think she was also. Leading, I strongly disagree with that. I really, in fact, I I know this was surprise. I'd like to see a bit of an old fashioned dose of Marxism come back, uh, be, because Marx. Taught us about social class.
0: Yes.
1: And and social class can divide us, Mm. but it can also unite us. Yes. In a way that this cultural identity stuff does not. It specifically looks for division and then aggravates them and exploits them. They are never happier unless they're finding out what differentiates us. And that means that economics is relegated to irrelevance. And it means, I mean, for example, you've got the voice coming up. I will speak naturally having been here for at least six days now as a walking expert on the voice uh, <laughs> like old journalists you know we yes you know we think we know what we're doing I mean when I when I got on the plane from London to come here the voice was a tv show um, <laughs> when I when I landed in Sydney it was a constitutional amendment <laughs> but you are going to have this debate now it's not for me to take Site, Spectator Australia will take the side, the editor will determine that. But you're going to have this debate, which is basically about a particular cultural identity, yes. Yes. elevating that above everything else, uh, which is going to rip you apart mm-hmm. and is going to suck the bandwidth out of the rest of the political system at a time when the global economy is still in a relatively precarious position. And... I would venture to suggest, from my position of total ignorance, will in the end do nothing mm. for the indigenous community of this country mm. uh, who need things to be done. Mm-hmm. But it will be brilliant for the political elite. Mm. It will create jobs and bureaucracy and power and importance. I'll just give you a quick example of that. The referendum in Scotland for independence in 2014, uh, which the SNP led, was in a sense uh, the argument that the Scots should have their own voice, that, that it should be a separate nation with a distinctive Scottish voice. Now, those of us uh, who, who uh, were against that argued that Scotland already had its own voice. You know, it has a powerful voice within the union, and I mean, and if the Scots disappear to run their own affairs, I mean, who the hell is going to run England? I mean, mm. you know, we've been, we've been doing it for the English for 300 years. They're just, they're just not used to running their own affairs <laughs> anymore. So that was an argument for a voice in a different way mm. from what's happening here. But it was for a voice. Mm. And let's create a political system that will give them the voice. So this is what happened. It did create... We didn't get independence, but it did create a a home rule parliament in which all domestic matters are now run out of Edinburgh. Basically, foreign policy, defence and macroeconomic issues Mm. are still run out of uh, what the SNP laughingly called the imperial parliament (laughs) uh, in in London. Mm. But here was the consequence of that. Scotland got its voice of home rule in Edinburgh. A parliament that they said would cost... uh, 80 million Australian dollars to build ended up costing 900 million, just shy of a billion dollars to build a Home Rule Parliament. 130 people became members of that parliament, earning salaries they could not dream of earning anywhere else. Mm. Uh, And none of them had earned anything uh, like it before. They had power. They had position. They were the bee's knees. The media there loved it because the media had its own wee parliament to cover and all gave Mm. them uh, jobs and so on. So the political elite did fine. So did all the quangos, all the government bodies around that the Scottish government bought them up. You take a a rape crisis, which is uh, Scotland, which is meant to represent the victims of rape. That is now 70% funded by the Scottish government mm. and so never takes a critical line against the Scottish government, even on the transgender issue when Nicola Sturgeon was mm. trying to put a, a uh, twice-convicted rapist who mm. had suddenly self-identified as a woman into a woman's prison. I mm. mean, how stupid can you be? Mm. Well, stupid enough for her to lose her job. Yes. So all that worked for the political elite. Yeah. But what about the ordinary people of Scotland who were promised better policies? Mm. The attainment gap between poor kids and better off affluent kids in Scottish schools got wider. It's never been wider than now. Waiting lists for the NHS are longer even than England. They're long in England. They've never been longer in Scotland. Cancer outcomes are amongst the worst in Europe. Mm. And deaths from drug addiction are the worst in, Euro- in Europe, not just Britain, by a factor of five, wow. by a ratio of five. So political elite sitting in Edinburgh, we're fine. We've got our offices, we've got the power, uh, we've got all the rest. Uh, the ordinary people of Scotland, what benefit have they seen? And that may be an issue if we where cultural identity and things <laughs> like The Voice, that may, may be where it leads.
0: Andrew, I know that Rowan Dean asked you this question on Sky News at the weekend, but I'll ask it for this audience. I mean, you've, you've interviewed many prominent political figures over a long period of time. If you had a moment with the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and you could ask him a question, what would it be about The Voice?
1: Uh, I would ask him that how can the people of Australia make an informed decision on The Voice if they don't know the answers to the most important questions? because it's, I find it, as, an out, as I say as an outsider looking in, this is a very important decision. It may be right, may be wrong to vote for the voice. That's a matter for you, not for me. But if I had a vote, I would like to know uh, who will choose the voice? How will it be chosen? For how long would you serve in the voice? Will you be paid to be in the voice? How, what will the overall budget for the voice be? How big will the bureaucracy be? Is it purely advisory? Or would it, with judicial activism, actually gain mm. more power? After all, Mr Albanese said it would be a brave government mm-hmm. that would limit the voice or ignore the voice. Is it confined, because the wording, I think, is, uh, is opaque, is it confined to matters of direct relevance to uh, the indigenous community? Or would the voice have a say over the AUKUS treaty? Would it have a say over the Reserve Bank of Australia's interest rate uh, policy? Uh, and to all these questions, it seems to me so far, answers have there been none. Now, it's early days and they may come out in the campaign. But before I could make up my mind on that, as I understand it, there's a a consensus Uh in Australia for reconciliation and for recognition yeah. of the particular yeah, I think there's a widespread
0: view that supports Indigenous constitutional recognition. Correct. The right. question is whether this voice model is the we appropriate do it. measure. And I yeah. think
1: it's quite hard to come to a decision on that until some of these questions mm-hmm. okay. are answered.
0: Now, the Prime Minister is among those who says that Australia's standing in the world is at stake here, mm. and he argues that a, a rejection of the uh, the Yes campaign ...in the October referendum will damage Australia's Mm. international relations. You followed Australia from afar for a Mm. long period of time. Is there any truth to that argument that Australia's standing will be diminished significantly in the world?
1: I would, to use a technical, uh, infelicitous technical term, say it's a lot of bollocks. Uh, uh, I mean, first of all, no one outside Australia knows anything about the voice. <laughs> you know, no one's been following this. It's had no international I think the New York Times had coverage. a short story a few months ago. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> uh, I mean, this, uh, this weekend Sunday Times of London, its story was that a, an indigenous figure was going to replace uh, King Charles on the, one of the Australian currency bills. Yeah. It wasn't about the, the voice. No. I think the the view, insofar as people know anything about Australia from abroad, and they know very little. Mm. Uh, you know, it's a country that's a long way away. It's a sure a hell of a big country, but it's 25 million people, which is basically the population of the M25, inside the M25 <laughs> in London. Uh, It's a country that is growing in importance. I think the AUKUS deal has made that clear, and I'm very pleased that Britain is now going to be a seminal part of that as well as Australia and the United States. I was saying so far what people do know about Australia. They like Australia. They like Australia. They like the attitude of Australians. They, they, They like the... Uh, the lifestyle, they like the prosperity that Australia seems to have, they like the no-nonsense kind of egalitarian attitude of, of of Australians. I don't think the voice has anything to do with Australia's reputation, except that you might now, of course, created an own goal, having decided you're going to have this referendum. And, and, and I see a lot on the yes side saying if you are against it, you're a bunch of racists. Mm. That, that, that could then become the view that if, uh, if you do vote against uh, the rest of the world, you say, oh, I didn't know that, but Australians are a bunch of racists. <laughs> but that's an own goal. You brought that yeah. on yourself. Yes,
0: yes. Andrew, let's change the subject and talk about American politics. You follow the United States very closely, you have for many years. The Trump indictment last week, what do you think are the likely consequences of the Trump indictment for the American presidential political scene given that Trump is uh, gaining a new lease
1: on life? Well, he has gained a new lease of life. I mean, I think it's very bad news uh, what's happened. Uh, And I think that if you were going to break the precedence of 250 years and charge a former president with criminal charges, which has never happened before, even though a few previous presidents have been criminals, they were (laughs) never charged uh, by it, I just can't help feeling you would need something a lot more substantial than putting in wrong-entry bookkeeping. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, which is, uh, we all know what Donald Trump did. Yes. Um, he paid hush money to us. He star. paid, yeah. uh, hundreds, uh, as, as the yeah. chap uh, uh, who does Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live, which I find a very uh, unfunny show on NBC. Yes. But it was funny, on Saturday night they had this guy, Mimicking impersonating Donald Trump uh, because it was Easter, saying he was really the modern Jew, uh, Jesus, and that, and that, like Jesus, all he had done was to try and help a sex worker, <laughs> <you know>? <laughs> <Very> <laughs> which, I, which I actually even got me to. <laughs> yeah. uh, and That's uh, pretty funny. So, I think they've made a big mistake, yes, uh, in going for him on this. My own view is that the most serious potential charge against Donald Trump is his attempt to lean on the Georgia authorities, Republicans, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, to find find an extra 13,000 votes. This was after the 2020 election. After the twenty, That yep. seems to me to be a lot more serious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It also well, there's, means... There's, there's actual uh, telephone uh, evidence. Oh, it's inside. recorded. It's you recorded. can hear yeah. it. Uh, to them. It also means that because uh, misentering, uh, falsifying bookkeeping... Mm-hmm. First of all, it's subject to a statute of limitations, which has already run out and counts as a misdemeanor, not a felony under American or New York state law. What this uh, district attorney has to do now is is argue that the misdemeanor were used in pursuit of a bigger felony, uh, which is criminal. That strikes the statute of limitations and turns a misdemeanor into a proper criminal charge. The problem is he can't tell us what that felony is. Mm. Uh, he's trying to make out it's the breach of campaign law, uh, mm. uh, of finance law. Yep. That's federal law. He's mm. a state judge. Mm. And I don't see what the breach was. It was Donald Trump's own money. He didn't use campaign finances. And then he said, oh, well, there was also tax. The New York state was cheated out of tax. That isn't actually true. What Trump did to pay back his sleazebag lawyer, Mr. Cohn was to double the money that had been given to the porn star so that Cohen could then afford his income taxes on the money he got. So the New York State got yes. the income tax. Actually, it got income tax on money it wasn't going to get. So I don't know how you, you do that. And the, What it's done, though, just the, yeah. the political fallout, is it has energized the Trump base. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it has meant funds pouring in, $15 million dollars, in the three days after uh, he appeared wow. in the Manhattan Court, uh, court, uh, it has not backed Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who is the only serious contender mm-hmm. for the Republican nomination. He now looks like a diminished man and is. Running all over the place, wondering what to do. He even said that if New York State tried to extradite yes. Mister Trump from Florida, he would stand in their way. I mean, a ludicrous yes. proposition, yes. but that's how. And we should say
0: that won in Florida. He was reelected by nineteen points. Nineteen points. So his political capital went up after Enough. those November elections, whereas Trump's went down because most of his candidates did very badly at the midterm so, elections.
1: So it's early days, and a lot can happen. But it has undoubtedly improved enormously Mr. Trump's chances of winning again the Republican nomination. It has also made it certain that Mr. Biden uh, will run again as well on the grounds that I may be 82 but I beat him last time. Yes. And I can do so again. And I think the prospect there is not a happy one for a country that we all depend on in various ways and you know, need as part of a guarantor of our freedoms. Both Australia and the United Kingdom need good and closer relations <clears throat> with uh, America. With America, you've got a choice between a a narcissist in his late seventies, facing a number of criminal charges, uh, who we know will be like a bull in a china store mm. when it comes to foreign policy at a time when the war in Ukraine continues and the Chinese get ever more militant in their uh, training exercises off the coast of Taiwan, and an 82-year-old with a a vice president who is not uh, fit for purpose, But Kamala he, Harris. But he cannot get cannot get rid of her because she is ethnic and female. Mm-hmm. If he had a vice president <laughs> as a useless old white man, he could get rid of her. They're easily dispensable and yes. disposable. But Kamala Harris, he cannot get rid of. That is a terrible choice. So you're suggesting for the that at this American stage, people,
0: all things considered, twenty twenty-four is likely to be a repeat of 2020. Biden's things stand at the moment. Okay, well, let me put this to you. This is George Will, the legendary Washington Post Indeed. columnist, who's been writing a column twice a week for the Post uh, since the early 70s. He was a guest at CIS during the pandemic. We did a Zoom event. Mm. About 500,000 views with George right at the height of those riots uh, after the uh, death of um, George Floyd. This is what Will wrote, George Will wrote in the Washington Post just after the Trump indictment, maybe... Just maybe, this is rock bottom for embarrassing U.S. politics.
1: Yeah, I think it is rock bottom, which is why I agree with that. Which is why I'm a little bit depressed at the choice that could emerge from yeah. it. But quite often, you can stay at rock bottom for quite a while. Yes, you know it doesn't necessarily follow that when you hit rock bottom, you start to bounce back up again. And the danger is that the die is now cast. That, uh, Mister, look, America, we all live in a world where things change quickly overnight. So it's care. You know, I remember, what was it that uh, there was a famous football manager who says, uh, uh, I don't make predictions and I never will. Oh, hold on, I think you just made a prediction. Uh, so we have to be careful, and I, and I think we can only stick with the knowledge we have at the moment. But sitting here okay. tonight, I think Mr. Trump must now be regarded as favourite to get the Republican nomination. I wouldn't have said that uh, if we were here only a couple of That's months if he keeps ago. Out of jail. Well, he can run from uh, jail. There, there was a candidate in uh, 1920, ran for president from jail. Right. Uh, called Eugene Debs. Oh, the
0: socialist. Uh, he yes. ran
1: from jail. Uh, Woodrow yeah. uh, Wilson had yeah. jailed him because yeah. he had fought against the draft uh-huh. for the First World War. He yes. was accused of tre- treason. He, <laughs> he ran from, uh, uh, I think it was a Pennsylvania penitentiary uh, somewhere and he got a million votes. Uh, and he didn't do any kind of, in fact, he got more votes than he got the previous time he'd the time. So don't, don't tell Donald Trump uh, that. Uh, no, look, if he's in jail, I I, I yeah. that's a Okay, of, but But I'm just saying, Biden is then yes. the char- – No Democrat is going to challenge Biden if Biden says he's going to run. Yes. If Biden says he's not running, there will be a bloodbath yes. in the Democrat Party to, because uh, Kamala Harris will not be a shoe-in. Indeed, I don't think – she would win the nomination. It would be entirely new. But as things stand at the moment, that looks like a repeat. And it's not a happy prospect given that we live in a world where the dictators are on the march mm. and democracy is on the defensive. You say these
0: are unpredictable times, but they're also dangerous times. You they just are made dangerous that point. Times. I mean, the, the Ukraine crisis mm. remains unresolved after a year. You mentioned earlier that China, and just in just the last few days, they had We've these seen military that. drills yep. along the vibrant island democracy of Taiwan. Mm. Um, there's uh, still tensions in the Persian Gulf. And at the same time, you've got a very divided, polarised America that's likely to put forward at the next election these two political lightweights. How can we in Australia, and indeed Britain, and indeed general allies of the United States, have faith in U.S. staying power in the world
1: given all of
0: these deep divisions in the United States?
1: Well, I always take comfort in Churchill's uh, words when he said of America, you can always be sure in the end America will do the right thing. It just takes a while to get there. Uh, and that's usually what happens. And I think that, uh, I mean, I think if Mr. Trump was to become president again, all bets are off. Who knows what he would do? What would have happened... If Mr. Trump had been in the White House when Ukraine was invaded, I, I would suggest that Putin would be in Kiev by now. He mm. would not have stopped it. He would have found some reason not. Well, to Well, the do counterargument it. is that
0: Trump would have made it very clear that Ukraine would never be part of NATO, and that's why he wouldn't invade. But if but you Ukraine. think
1: if you think that the reason why Mr. Putin invaded Ukraine was because he was worried to be part of NATO, I've got a bridge to sell you. He's, he's, uh, it's called the Brooklyn Bridge. It's mine. Uh, he invaded Ukraine because he thinks it's part of greater Russia. That's why he invaded his strategic and geostrategic role, is to recreate the near abroad. Not to recreate the old Soviet Empire, not take back the stands uh, or anything like that, but, but the Baltic states, Ukraine, he's already taken the Crimea, Georgia, all of that up to the Polish border. That's his aim. Donald Trump would have said nothing to stop that. Indeed, Putin would have taken comfort. He didn't think we were going to react anyway. He thought we were too weak and divided. He got the shock of his life when actually the West got together and NATO, which President Macron had said was brain dead, turned out to be pretty yeah. formidable. And what are the consequences here for China, read really, uh, Taiwan? I think the consequences for uh, on one element... It's a plus for China because it's forcing attention away from the Indo Pacific region mm-hmm. to an area of the world which we thought was over mm-hmm. in terms of major geopolitical change. We thought that any problems in Europe were essentially regional problems, not global problems. And yet America has been for, and America was making its famous pivot to the Pacific. Mm-hmm. You know, America has taken the view from Hillary Clinton to to uh, George Bush, and so on. the The twenty first century is the Pacific yeah, well, century. I mean, President Obama was in the Australian Parliament Obama in twenty eleven uh, as yep. well. Mm. But suddenly, America has been forced back to the. You know, America now has a hundred thousand troops in Europe. It's getting back to Cold War levels mm. again. It has twelve thousand troops in Poland. That's not a tripwire. That's a defensive force. Uh, you can't lose twelve thousand troops. And not force in, you know they have they have re, they have now built this massive base. Yes. Now the biggest base in Europe is in Poland, and they've never had a base in Poland before. And they love the Poles because unlike the Germans or the French, the Poles have prepared to spend money on their own defense. But Andrew, can so, America walk and <laughs> so truth the on, same time? Hold on, hold on. You're worse than me. me <laughs> so all that is. Good news for China, because it takes our focus away from what is clearly mm. going to be a much bigger problem, Ukraine, in the 21st century. I, I, I think the good news on Ukraine is that it's made President Z realize that invading a country that's prepared to fight for its freedom is not as easy as you might think. Mm. And Taiwan is better equipped than Ukraine mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with probably with even with a better, more modern military and is part of an informal defensive alliance yes. that America would... Yes. I mean, I was, in the, I was out at Fort Meade at the NSA, uh, the National Security Agency. They have a lot of plans. Uh, I don't think China would know what's going to hit it. And yeah. Xi knows. Xi knows that he cannot fail on this. Because if he fails, the Faustian... First of all, it would, even if he wins, it destroys the Chinese economy. There is no way that the Taiwanese are going to let China have TMSC. And that is the most sophisticated, It makes 90% of the world's most sophisticated chips. Mm. They'll blow it up rather than let uh, uh, China have it. And they have moved a huge chunk of the production to Alabama. Yes. So so he's got to think carefully that if he fails, and you remember the first impact with the Chinese Communist Party and the China people is you will have no freedom, but we're going to look after you. Mm. If the global economy, and hence the Chinese economy, is destroyed, that post-impact breaks.
0: Um, Back to the first point that you made about China and the upside for China, I mean, and the downside for America being distracted by the Ukraine crisis. Mm. I mean, you know, it's been more than 30 years since the end of the Cold War and the collapse of Soviet communism, and that was the time of the unipolar moment, as Charles Krauthammer called it. This was the notion of American global leadership and a a Pax Americana if you like, Uh, but surely the lessons of the Iraq debacle and the debacle in Afghanistan is that there are real limits on America's power. Can it walk and chew gum in Asia and
1: Europe at the same time? uh, Let me come back to that question, which you rudely interrupted my (laughs) previous answer uh, on that because it's a very good question and the answer is no. Uh, In the long term, and by that I mean through the 20s into the 2030s and beyond, even America cannot afford to defend Europe and pivot to the Pacific. Uh, for a start, the kind of military required in the Pacific is totally different from the kind of military in Europe. So essentially, Europe is boots on the ground, as that build-up in Poland shows. Uh, overwhelmingly, in the Pacific, you need amphibious forces. Uh, and that's an entirely different kind of, of military there. So America cannot do both. There is not the political will to do both. So, and I think the second thing is it could be Mr. Biden, for all his faults, he's actually done, I think, very well on Ukraine. He could be the last Atlanticist president mm. that we get. Uh, the last one that is regards Europe because that's his generation as the front line for America. The front line will easily move, I think, to the Eastern Pacific, mm. which, of course, was... of more important mm-hmm. to Australia so something'll we'll have to give and that is I, I, what it means is that at some stage Europe will have to do more of its own defense mm-hmm. I mean Europe is the biggest welfare state spending in the world and some of the small smallest military spending mm-hmm. and that is why the balance of power in Europe is now moving eastwards and the rising power in Europe now is Poland uh, and that's the country the Americans love. Mm. It's the country that Britain has very good relationships with, going way back to the Battle of Britain, which I doubt we would have won if it hadn't been for the contribution of the Polish Mm. uh, uh, pilots. Poland is now, if if you look at what is happening, Poland got Ukraine right. They said they're going to invade. Berlin and Paris said, no, they're not. We can talk them out of it anyway. Macron goes and sees them... sits at one end of a table that's about three miles long, uh, <laughs> to President Putin, the Germans say no. Poland said to Germany, don't take this gas. They're going to sucker you in. Yeah. They'll make you dependent. you lose any control of foreign policy. They said, don't you worry. We know what we're doing. And as Germany was agreeing to build Nord Stream 2, the second gas pipeline from Russia, Poland was building floating LNG stations mm. off the coast, so that it could take in gas from Qatar and from the United States. Poland called every one of these things right. It is now building an army which will be the biggest in Europe. Its army at the moment is 115,000 strong. In five years' time, it will be 250,000 strong, uh, sorry, 300,000 strong, 250 full-time professional soldiers, 50,000 highly trained Mm. reservists. It is buying 35 Abraham's tanks from America, but that's just in a way as a symbolic gesture for the Americans because Abraham's tanks work by turbine and they're a nightmare unless you have all the backup. Far more important and almost totally underreported, unreported, they're buying 1,000 tanks from South Korea. Hmm. 1,000 tanks from South Korea. Hmm. They are now, if you look at, and by the way, there is total consensus in Poland, mm. not doing this. No okay. one's arguing against it. They are not going to be invaded again. Now, you add in the Baltic states who are ready to fight as well, in I mean Britain has 5,000 troops in the Baltic states now. We patrol their perimeter defense with our typhoon uh, fighters and, uh, and our troops. Even at the height of the Cold War, something is now happening that never happened. Finland and Sweden are joining NATO. Yeah. The the strategic significance of that is huge. That part of Europe was always our weakest weakest link because Finland and Poland were not in NATO. I was speaking to Carol Bildt recently, former Swedish uh, prime minister. Uh, If you take Denmark, Finland, Sweden and Norway, Norway and Denmark, of course, already being members, but you take these four Scandinavian countries... They alone can now mobilize 250 state-of-the-art fighter jets over the Baltic. Mm. There's no way Russia can move against that. Yeah. I mean, Russian military is so depleted, it has a better chance of invading Mars yeah. than it has of invading the Baltic states. These are a huge change, yeah. and it's moving Europe
0: east. Okay, and that perhaps explains why to mark the one-year anniversary of the
1: Russian invasion he of went, Ukraine, President Biden went Japan. to Poland. Yeah. He You know, mm-hmm. they... The degree of corporate... You know, the Poles have taken in one and a half million Ukrainian refugees. They actually took in six million yeah. and then the, the, some of the six million moved around. Some went back. When Kiev didn't fall, some were able to go back yeah. to the West. But they took in one and a half million. They've done this massive defense build up. All the arms that are going to the Ukrainian forces go through Poland. Mm. That's the only way. And the Americans had a major problem They have this logistical operation now that a plane full of military equipment can leave the eastern seaboard of the United States at six o'clock in the evening, local time, and be deployed by the Ukrainian army at three o'clock in the afternoon, the next day, local time. They land in Poland. The problem is how do you get them from Poland into Ukraine? The Americans said, look, we can't, obviously, we can't put American soldiers, they can't. We can't send this stuff unprotected. It's state-of-the-art equipment. But we can't have American soldiers, and we we think you probably can't have Polish soldiers mm. either. You're a member of NATO. Uh, and the police said, no, we can't do that, but we know what we will do. And they said, the Americans said, well, what, so, okay, so what, what are we going to do? And they said, we are calling up all our retired special forces, and we are creating an unofficial unit of these guys. They are really well-trained. Uh, they still get some training, but they're not part of the Polish army. They're not official Polish soldiers, and they take the weapons in. Yeah. That's the kind of cooperation the Americans love. At a time when Macron is thinking yeah. he can talk yeah. Putin to the peace table, or Schultz is in. You know, the situation in Germany is so absurd that the Greens are now more militant yeah. about the military <laughs> than the Social yeah. Democrats. Yes. So that is yeah. why the but, but, ban- but, but I, 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 just a few no. The significance of the switch of the balance of power as it moves in, by the way, Romania has become, which is also a member of NATO, is a key Black Sea state. Now, that will allow, given that for Russia, that is the near abroad, that will allow uh, the Americans over time to withdraw. And the British, despite Brexit, will play a major part in that because we have great relations with all of them. In an unknown thing that was basically, we did two things that have not really been reported. The Poles were very worried that they would be a subject of uh, cyber warfare assaults by the Russians. And so the British, the British of the best uh, cyber warfare in, uh, defenses in Europe. We extended our defenses to the eastern border, which included Poland. We protect Poland from cyber warfare. And in the interim period between between Sweden and Finland, saying they wanted to join NATO, which we knew would take a time because we knew Turkey would cause problems, the British government extended its nuclear umbrella over Finland and Sweden. These are not widely reported, but I can assure you in Helsinki, the political elite noticed. And I think one of the reasons why Rishi Rishi Sunak was able to solve the Northern Ireland protocol in the end was because Warsaw, the Baltic states, Helsinki and Stockholm said to Brussels, look, we are dependent on the British, on nuclear umbrella, cyber warfare, troops in Estonia and you're arguing about sausages going to Northern (laughs) Ireland? Stop it already. Uh, uh. Do a deal. And I think that had a huge influence in getting that yeah, deal but notwithstanding done.
0: Notwithstanding all your interesting and sound points here about Europe.
1: Oh no, 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 this, I'll put this, this to you. This, this, this no, no. is when politicians did you with respect <laughs> <laughs> you're surely talking complete nonsense. Surely surely a rising China
0: is a much greater threat to world order than a declining Russia. Yeah, that's I just bogged said down that. in the Donbass. But I mean <laughs> America is still going to be focused on Europe. It's still going to
1: be part of NATO. How can it still walk and chew gum? Well, I've answered that. Uh, You want to go through all again? It was quite a long answer. I have told you that in the short term... Well,
0: all the weapons that the Americans are giving to Ukraine, isn't that depleting
1: America in a fighting force in East states? No, because let me give you a class for slow learners. (laughs) Uh, The weapons that are required in Europe are very different from the weapons required in the Pacific. And and we're in an interim stage where Ukraine has given us a breathing space for Europe to get its act together. My argument is that getting its act together will happen more in the East than it will with the Germans and the French. But it will mean as we rebuild along the lines I've suggested, America will pivot because, as I said quite clearly... America in the long term cannot afford
0: to do I get that, both. but we've had at this CIS, uh, Peter Jennings, one of Australia's leading uh, defence intellectuals, and he says the moment for China to strike is in the next few years when America is so focused on Europe and America is less focused on East Asia and, moreover, that China has huge demographic challenges and serious internal challenges which will hurt them in the next 10 to 20 years. But in the short term, they might be in a more agile yeah. position to strike.
1: Well, but they're not in a more agile position to strike because they haven't got the military could do it yet. You know, the, 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 the state of the Chinese military is nowhere near ready to take on Taiwan. They have a lot more work they have to do. Even Z, I mean, privately in the Politburo, they think they won't be ready before 2027. There's this scare tactics in Washington. I know the generals are talking about, oh, it could happen in 2025. Yes. I think that's that's to get more military spending. That's mm. what that's uh, mm. uh, about. And also, as I said earlier, if Z fails, he's finished. I mean, it could be like the Australian referendum. Whoever loses, whether it's Mr. Dutton or Mr. Albanese, it could. <laughs> end their political career. Z knows that. He can't afford to lose. The Americans have not taken their eye off the ball in the Pacific. My argument is in the longer term, they can't afford to do both. But, you know, they are planning. One of the things they are, they are planning to do, which will give the Chinese quite a shock, if the, the Chinese strategy is still the million-man swim, that's what they call it, mm which is it'll be an amphibious force, a million strong, to go to Taiwan. Uh, it'll be the biggest amphibious land attempted landing since D-Day. They have a problem with that. First of all, there are, there is no Normandy Beach in Taiwan. There are very few places where mm. you can land, and they're incredibly well defended. They think that they can neutralize the American Navy, the 7th Fleet, Uh, They can make that ineffective on what we used to call the Straits of Formosa, now the Straits of Taiwan. That's not what the Americans are going to do. They're going to stand off on that. They are ready. And and you can't build up a million strong amphibious force without us knowing about it. You know, we knew Putin was going to invade Ukraine. We'll certainly see a million people building up. (laughs) The Americans have developed a thousand... Sea mines, controlled by artificial intelligence, which they are going to cede the whole Straits of Taiwan in the event that China looks like it's going to attack. And these mines go to the bottom of the ocean and they just lie there. But because they're controlled by... And the Americans do nothing. But because they're controlled by artificial intelligence, they will read if there's a major amphibious force coming across the Straits, and they will rise and they will destroy the Chinese force. Mm. I mean, there's a, the Chinese are in for quite uh, a shock if they attempt this. The degree of the American technology on this is quite huge, and they are teaching the uh, Taiwanese on cyber warfare mm-hmm. and all the rest of it, and they can position their navy, which has the ability to hit the amphibious force, but the amphibious force and the Chinese couldn't hit the American Navy. So now we've got time for questions, and our first question will go, Seg, just over here. Thank you,
0: um, Andrew New. I just wanna ask you, uh one of your most famous interviews, and I've watched this multiple times, it was with Alex Jones, and you once said that it was one of the worst interviews that you've ever conducted. Has there been any interview that has almost matched the title and what are your
1: how did you feel about actually asking him so many questions alex jones we should
0: be clear is a what right wing conspiracy theorist yeah it's
1: it's not the Alex. there's an alex jones here it's not is it alex jones that's alan jones oh that's alan jones no no (laughs) it's not it's not no 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 no, it's when you said right wing conspiracy theorist (laughs) Uh, i think there's a difference (laughs) <laughs> Alex Jones was difficult to interview him because he's an idiot, and uh, nothing has given me more pleasure than to see him bankrupted by the parents in that mass shooting. Yeah. I mean, he said, I forget what the name was because there so many mass shootings in yeah. America now. Yeah, the New York. But it, he said F-7. this mass shooting had been staged by by actors, mm. and that it was just the gun control lobby had staged mm. this. Now, so these he said this of parents who had lost forty children. And you couldn't get him to retract it. So then they sued him. And they won over a billion dollars. And he'll be panhandling on the streets soon. And I shall not be putting anything into his (laughs) hat. So he was just an idiot, a believer in global conspiracy. It wasn't a serious uh, interview. Uh, So it, 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 it was. I said on air, you're the worst person I've ever had to interview. And and I was sticked by that. He was the first because he was subject to no logic or. Control. I, I was trying to say goodbye at the end of the way. He was still shouting at me. And it was all an act because, you know, the moment <laughs> I finished the goodbye and the end title, the end credits had stopped rolling, he says, Oh, well, Andrew, nice to see you. And you'd go and walked away just pleasantly. It was all an act. He shouts and shouts and shouts. <laughs> when the cameras no longer run, he was, It was nice to see you, Andrew. Thanks for that. And walked away. So. Nothing has come close to that, but it was wholly unproductive. It was wholly unnecessary to do. We should never have bothered. Yeah. What about the interview with Ben Shapiro? That's attracted something like well, 12 yeah. million views. Well, I think the, the, the Ben Shapiro interview speaks more to a fundamental problem the media at the moment, which is that Mr Shapiro lives in one of these American echo chambers yeah. uh, and you've got them here and you can see some of them in Britain too. Uh, now, in which he he had never met anybody who had a different view. Mm. So he's used to having people on his program that say, and don't you agree with the following? Yes. He said, yes, I agree with the following. And don't you think that? Yes, I agree with that. And they all just scratch each other's backs. You see that on Fox News on the right. You mm. see that on MSNBC mm. on the left mm. in America uh, as well. And we had him on. I forget what the reason was, but I did my usual thing. Which is, let's find out what he stands for, and I'll take the exact opposite position and we'll test him. You know, and he, and I think abortion was one of the issues. Yeah, yeah. He is very fundamentalist, very, uh, I mean, basically no abortion. And I said, aren't you, that there's lots of people are very wary of abortion, but the line you're taking would seem to take us back to the dark ages. Um, and that's when he blew up. Yeah. And we had no idea that was going to happen. I just, I was going to move on abortion is not one of my big subjects. I was going to move on to other subjects to talk about. And he just exploded. Mm-hmm. And I think it speaks to a country's... De- the danger for democracies now, and it's here, it's in my country, mm-hmm. it's in America, is that we're all becoming atomized. And we only read mm-hmm. the papers or watch the TV mm-hmm. shows or listen to the radio stations that reinforce what mm-hmm. we already think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I said on the Q&A... Uh, on Monday night I was quite surprised given that Mr Dutton had created the conditions now for a proper debate in Australia about the voice that they didn't have a major opponent of the voice on I mean that's what the BBC would have done yes we would have picked somebody that was taking the Dutton line and we would have been someone who took the Al Benese line and the job of the anchor Mm -hmm. uh, or the presenter was not to be to take sides which ABC does Mm -hmm. all the time Mm -hmm. it's to be to hold the ring Mm and say, well, what do mm. you say to that? And mm. Didn't you say th- this? And we've now got in a put, world where... Put the counter-argument to them. Correct. Yeah. We're now in a world in which people don't want to be challenged. Yes. And and that Shapiro was had never that been challenged, yeah. which is why he threw his toys That's right. uh,
0: out of the pram. He ended the interview abruptly and you yeah. concluded by we, saying... We had
1: no idea what was happening. Yeah. What's his problem? <laughs> and he said, well, I've never heard of you. And I said, well, I've never heard of you. But sure. <laughs> <laughs> so... Still doing and it, doing in you. fairness
0: to him, I think he took to Twitter afterwards acknowledging that you beat him fair and square. He and, did. And uh, that you, in his words, demolished him. Okay, next question. Great to see you,
1: Tom. Andrew, why the woke and what's the answer? Well, why the woke? Uh, I, think the, I think the woke is, uh, as I said earlier, I think the, the woke comes from the university campus. That's where it started. Uh, like all these things that started in the American universities particularly in the Ivy League universities. That's what makes it so insidious in a way. It starts in the top universities and the top universities fill the top boardrooms. They fill the New York Times, the Washington Post, ABC, NBC, all, all the big companies. I think it's also come out, of, in a sense it's a, it's a post-Marxist uh, uh, concept as well. I think it's, it's a reaction to the defeat of Marxism in many ways that uh, mm. we lost the economic argument. Mm. A class war doesn't really work very well anymore. And uh, the, the, the general consensus in favour of what you might broadly call a market economy is what people in the centre-left, centre-right work. So let's think of something different, and that is cultural identity, uh, an ethnic identity. Let's go for that. That'll cause more problems. So you the development of critical race theory mm. in the United States, which is barely a theory. I mean, even Marcuse had more intellectual grit than critical race theory. But people love to suck it up. They love to believe it. It's it's commandeered. It's captured a generation. And they are taking these ideas with them into the workplace uh, and beyond. And because it's only just begun, I think it will be a while before Mm -hmm. it can be reversed. And it's dangerous. Because despite the history of the United States or Britain's history of slavery or whatever, there are actually, Australian is one of them, there are now successful multiracial societies that would have been inconceivable even 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, And, you know, if you're black in America, it's a pretty good place to be if you want to get on in the world but you're not allowed to say that. Mm. You are a victim and you're downtrodden and you've never escaped the legacy of uh, slavery. And that hangs over everything. And you had this 1619 project run inevitably by the New York Times, (laughs) which which basically tried to completely rewrite American history. Mm. Mm. That uh, to such an extent, the, the key date was 1619, that's when the first slaves arrived, and that the purpose of the American Revolution was not to throw off the British colonial power. It was to guarantee that slavery would continue because if Britain had stayed the imperial power, slavery would have gone. So you have then turned Mm -hmm. American history on its head Instead of being a a war of independence, a war of revolution, an anti-colonial war, a war against the imperial power to create the first republic, which is what all Americans have been told. And is, by the way, largely true. Like all things, it's not entirely true, but it's largely uh, true. You have now turned American independence. America's founding fundamental purpose was to preserve slavery. That's a big change. That's not a marginal footnote rewriting of history, that upends everything Americans have thought of themselves. And yet, it's also, by the way, historical nonsense. Uh, But that's what's been done. That's a huge change that has got to work its way through. And so I don't think we're going to change this uh, very quickly. And I think, if anything, it will get worse before it gets better. I'm the afraid. Italian Marxist
0: Antonio Gramsci, about a century ago, talking about the left's march through oh. the institutions.
1: Sure, which the German, young German social democrats tried in the 60s, and they were Marxists, but they didn't succeed. No. But they are succeeding, yeah, that that yeah. kind of view is succeeding okay. now. Next question. Yes.
0: Hi, Andrew. Do you believe that the extremity of cultural identity politics has reached its peak. And when do you suspect that it will trough? Uh,
1: No, I don't believe it. I'm afraid it's going to get worse before it gets better. I find it hugely destructive. Uh, There is this general view that we don't talk about the dark side of our history and that that's what we need to do now. I mean, where I am, we talk about the dark side of our history all the time. We know that we industrialized slavery. That's what you know, we weren't alone. The Portuguese were at it first, then the Spanish, then the French. But we industrialized it in taking slaves from West Africa over to the United to what became the United the colonies. We know the dark side of our history. We know it was one of the most evil uh, uh, periods in the history of mankind. But we also know that we uh, abolished the slave trade. Uh, in a wave of Christian uh, evangelism. Wilberforce. Wilberforce being, being won. And that uh, to such an extent that even at the height of the Napoleonic War, uh, we deployed, a th- when Napoleon was on the brink of invading Britain, we deployed a third of the Royal Navy to West Africa to end mm-hmm. the slave trade. Mm-hmm. So we have that great shame, which can never be wiped out, but we also have something to be proud of as well in right playing a role in getting rid of the slave trade and, of course, abolishing slavery as well, which we were... And we didn't have to fight a civil war to do it, mm-hmm. uh, unlike the Americans. So I think... I don't think we have ignored the bad, bad bits of our history, and I'm comfortable talking about the bad bits of our history because I know them. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure in Australia, yep. you, you, you can do the same thing. But I do... But just as I said earlier, we, we have the makings of successful multiracial societies now. And you see that here, you see it in Britain, you see it in America. We have a long way to go, but we've come a long way. You know, the, the king will uh, have his coronation, I think, in just under a month's time. Now, I will show my great support of it by going to New York. Um, <laughs> the king will have his coronation, and he will do so at a time when the first minister of Scotland is of South Asian Descent, when the leader of the second biggest party in Scotland, uh, the Labour Party, is of South Asian descent. The coronation will take place with a British Prime Minister who is Hindu, who is married to an Indian, whose Home Secretary responsible for the security of the coronation, Home Secretary, is Buddhist. Mm. And the chief rabbi will stay with the king the night before the coronation so that he doesn't have to travel on the Sabbath. So, you know, you want to tell me about diversity? I think we got diversity uh, there. We can do more, but I think rather than concentrate on what divides us now and and make mountains out of molehills. I would like to build on that mm. and make us even more multiracial and more a diverse society and more a society at, at ease with itself. But there are forces afoot who dine out on emphasizing our differences and who are frankly miserable if things are working. <laughs> if people are just getting along, they are miserable. Okay, next question. Uh Hi, Andrew. Um, Can I just return to Brexit for a minute? Sure. uh, And just ask whether you think that there's a sense of disappointment in the leave camp that what they were promised hasn't really been delivered yet? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. I think there is. I've never uh, made public my views on Brexit, so I'm not going to do so tonight. Uh, But I think there is a sense of disappointment. Uh, And I think that disappointment has come... From a number of factors. One is that they put so much effort into trying to deliver, to trying to win the referendum, that having won it, which was against their expectations, they didn't think they were going to win it, having won it, they had no idea what to do with it. And they then started knifing each other in the back. And so you ended up with Theresa May as Prime Minister, who was a Remainer. She saw Brexit as a problem to be managed as a Remainer rather than an opportunity to be exploited. So you had that most horrendous period in British politics with her as prime minister, where nothing was happening. And it became very polarized, and a lot of uh, Brexiteers thought the Remain forces were now organizing to push it back, to, uh, to, to, to make sure the referendum was not implemented. And, uh, there are many prob- and then, of course, she called the election that made it even worse. She had a working majority. She lost that. She was dependent on the DUP. No one in their right mind wants to be dependent on the Democratic, also the Unionist Party there, and only Boris broke that logjam with the landslide in 2019. But he had worked out how to to win. He still didn't know what to do uh, with it, and then, of course, the and uh, we had no proper bargaining position, and frankly, in the negotiations. The Europeans ran circles around us, and a lot of what we'd been told by the Brexiteers turned out not to be true. The German car industry will make sure you get a great deal because they have to sell their cars in Britain. We're the single biggest market for them and all that. Oh, Europe needs such as much as we need them. We'll get everything we got." Oh, it turned out to be nonsense. The Europeans, and particularly the Brussels Commission, they took the view that we needed a, a punishment beating. To encourage les autres, to make sure no one else tried it. And it worked. No one else is trying it. Madame Maloney is a big Eurosceptic. She ain't taking Italy out. Uh, even Le Pen has now changed uh. her tune in France. She's very sceptical of Brussels. She, is, she doesn't even want to leave the Euro anymore uh, now on that. So it worked. And then when you thought the government might have time to do it, the pandemic came along. Mm. And that just sucked the lifeblood out of normal politics. And... They just didn't have the bandwidth. I don't blame them. The the pandemic was uncharted territory. They gave up on Brexit and simply dealt with the pandemic. So I think, yeah, the answer is yes. It's been disappointing. There are two signs of light that it might be getting a bit better. One was the resolution of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is a technical thing, but huge, and actually paves the way for a much better free trade deal between Britain and the European Union, that deal comes up for renewal in 2025, and I think it will be much better. And the second thing is that because of Brexit, we have been able to join the Pacific Trade Partnership. And in the long term, that's huge. Mm. We are now part of a free trade arrangement, as is Australia, with the fastest growing part of the world. So that's not bad. So there is still hope, but they have definitely, they got it and they didn't know what to do with it.
0: Well, look, uh, we at CIS have been fortunate uh, to have hosted many prominent intellectuals and business figures and journalists over the last 50 years, but I think it's really hard to beat our guest tonight. Please thank Andrew Neil.
1: <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you.
0: For decades, CIS has been a fiercely independent voice working hard to promote sound liberal principles. To be notified of our future videos, make sure you subscribe to our channel, then click the notification bell. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our classical liberal cause. Check out the links on screen now to see how you can get involved.